This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I've always been kind of amazed at how your body looks after you and how little attention we, we generally pay to it and, and how ignorant nearly all of us are about what goes on inside us. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Today, we hear from renowned travel writer and science communicator Bill Bryson. Beloved by readers around the world, his works have included Notes from a Small Island, An Observation of Life in England, and best-selling science book, A Short History of Nearly Everything. His new book is called The Body, A Guide for Occupants, where he turns inward to look at the mechanisms that keep us alive. Here he is chatting to BBC Science Focus editorial assistant Amy Barrett, ahead of the body's publication. I wonder, your previous books have been influenced by your you know, particular experiences, so walking the App- Appalachian, Appalachian, Appalachian Trail. Trail. Um, was there anything that inspired you to write the body? Yeah, well, what, a couple of things that inspired me to write the body. One was this, this nagging realization that I know nothing or knew nothing at all about what goes on inside me. You know, I've been spending six and a half decades or so just, you know, throwing beer and pizza down my throat. And, and, and yet, you know, here I am still upright and in generally pretty good health. And, I'm, and I've always been kind of amazed at how your body looks after you and how little attention we, we generally pay to it and, and how ignorant nearly all of us are about what goes on inside us. So I, I just had this feeling, I, I, you know, I wanted to look into the body, literally look into the body and see, see how we're put together. And then at the same time, um, over the last several years, my older son has been 
he's a doctor now and he was, he was at medical school. And he would talk to me often with great enthusiasm about the things he was learning about the body at a, at a very technical level. But, you know, and he would just be excited about ribosomes and, you know, what goes on inside the cell and things like that. And I was kind of captivated by his interest in it and felt like I really ought to try and know a bit more about it. But I also discovered in just in conversations with him that he knew, although he knows everything you need to know about the body in order to practice medicine, he, he knew and was taught very little about the kind of social history of the body. So I could say to him, you know, why is it called Alzheimer's? And he, he wouldn't know. Or, you know, why, why is it Parkinson's disease? And, and he, he wouldn't know that. I mean, he'd know everything he needs to know in order to treat Parkinson's disease, but he wouldn't know the story of the original Parkinson uh, or Alzheimer or, or lots of other things. So I realized that, that even for, you know, medical professionals, I mean, even for people who deal with the body at a very technical level, there's a great deal that they usually don't know because they don't get the cultural and, and social side of these things. Mm-hmm. And I think reading that, it, you reading the body, you really realise it's it's not just a study of our bodies, but it's a study of the people who have studied and, and looked into the body, isn't it? Yeah, and that's. I mean, to me, that's that's the really fascinating thing. And it was the same thing with my earlier book, A Short History of Nearly Everything. What really fascinated me as I got more and more into the research work wasn't just what we know, but how do we know what we know? And you know, because I'm not a scientist, because I have no aptitude to be a scientist or a researcher or the kind of people who f- figure these things out, I'm fascinated by people who can do it and, and just full of admiration for them. And, and almost everything we know in any field of science, the body not least, it's because of lots and lots of people doing lots of very specific technical work. And I'm just so full of admiration for people who will spend their whole lives just looking at something, you know, very, very small. And occasionally they get big rewards. I'm, I, I, I like to think of myself as friends with uh, Venki Ramakrishnan, who's the um, president of the Royal Society. And he's a wonderful guy, and he got a Nobel Prize, but he spent his whole life just looking at ribosomes. And, and to me, that's just, you know, I, I couldn't do that. I wouldn't have that sort of application. But, of course, by doing that, he learns a little bit more about how the cell works, and you add that to all the other people who are doing all, lots and lots of other things around the world. And what you get in the end is a huge amount of knowledge. But it's because of lots and lots of people. You know, it's not just the world of science is not just Einstein's and Newton's. It's, it's also lots and lots of people who don't get a great deal of attention because they're working in very, very arcane and specific areas. Is there anything in your research for the books that, that really shocked you about the human body? Well, quite, quite I'm mean, not shocked exactly, but I was surprised by just how much we don't know. Um, but I mean, I mentioned Alzheimer's and, and I think the closest I came to being shocked was realizing that, you know, that Alzheimer's is called Alzheimer's because of a, a German doctor named Alois Alzheimer. And in 1906, he diagnosed a woman with the condition and, and the disease was subsequently named for him. But he could do nothing for this poor woman. And now, you know, 113 years later, anybody going to see a, a doctor with Alzheimer's will encounter exactly the same situation. The doctor, where they understand a little bit about what causes Alzheimer's, but a doctor today can do no more for a patient with Alzheimer's than Alois Alzheimer could do more than a century ago. And that was quite a shock to me, particularly when you realize how important uh, Alzheimer's is going to be as a, you know, how much, how much of our time and, and resources it's going to demand in the, in the coming years because, you know, so many more of us are living to older ages and so many more of us are, are suffering senility of one kind or another, not least Alzheimer's. So 
Yeah, that was a bit of a shock to realize that just how little we know about that. But in almost every every area of the, of the body, you don't have to ask, you don't have to delve too deeply before you come up against a wall of ignorance where we don't know why something happens. Mm-hmm. Or even, you know, even such basic things as why, why do we have a chin? Nobody knows why humans have chins. There's no structural reason for it. Presumably it's just we've, you know, we've, in, in the course of evolutionary history, we found them kind of dashing or lovely. You know? And we do. I mean, you know, you pe- people who are comparatively chinless are almost always deemed to be less attractive than people who have a good chin. It seems like a, a lot of things that come out of evolution actually either have no sort of purpose that we know of or they actually go counter to what the purpose would be. So, for example, the eye you talk about in the book. Yeah, the eye is one thing which is... You know, I mean, the eye is built almost completely back to front. I mean, because, you you know, in order to see now, you have to look through blood vessels and all kinds of stuff that's in the way. And, um, and, and you know, we're, the brain has to filter all that out. I mean, if you saw, if you actually saw, in inverted quotation marks, everything that your eye is seeing, you, you would, be, it would just be very confused. So what your brain does is it edits things out. Your brain does a lot of manipulating the reality of the world in order for you to perceive it the way we do, um, which is a fantastic thing, but it's also quite a cumbersome process. I mean, it would have made more sense if the eye had evolved so that all the blood vessels were behind the cornea, you know, that you did all this, the scene at the front of the eye rather than at the rear. But it's just evolution doesn't, doesn't work that way. It is a fairly, you know, it is a completely random process. And, and when things evolve, they don't necessarily evolve for the best. They just, you know, they, they evolve the way they do. Is there anything about our bodies that we do on a daily basis that we, we don't realise is so incredible? Well, I think, I think the thing that, that, that most blew me away was the realisation of when I was studying about the brain, I mean, the hardest part of writing the book was was keeping the brain from being the book, because because almost everything that is that is really fascinating and distinctive about us as organisms is is from the neck up, you know, and uh, um, you know, I mean, you know, all all other animals have livers and kidneys and pancreases and things like that, but what what separates us from them is is our brain, and the things the brain does are just is just amazing, and yet it is. You know, 75 to 80% water, and the rest is mostly fat and proteins. And you just think, God, you know, I mean, if somebody just gave you those ingredients and said, you know, make a brain out of this, you obviously you couldn't come close. You couldn't get it to do anything. I mean, the smartest people in the world couldn't come close to doing anything with that. And yet somehow we do it, you know, in the womb quite spontaneously and naturally. I think the very fact that the brain exists at all and does what it does, I think, is just the most astounding the most astounding fact in nature, possibly the most astounding fact in the universe. You seem so um, interested in, in the things that we don't know. Have you never considered becoming a scientist? or? or no. And again, as I say, I, I have absolutely no aptitude for it. I don't have the patience to stick with things. One of the great things about being a, a nonfiction writer is that you can bob about from subject to subject. And I get, I get really into these things. I mean, this book took me about four years of pretty steady application and you know it's like so it's kind of like going back to university all over again and really learning working at least as hard as I did when I was at university but now having done that I will you know if I do another book I would move on to something else and and then get in really get into that and as a consequence you know I can't keep up all my interests I mean I can't keep up with everything that I've done in the past 
But during the time I'm doing it, I'm absolutely, totally absorbed with that subject, whatever it is. But it allows you to move around. I, um, you know, I couldn't spend my whole life just studying snails or lichen or, <laughs> or something like that. I'm glad, you know, it's a very lucky thing that there are people in the world who can do that. But but for me, I'm much more of a magpie or you know, a moth or something. I flit around from place to place and thing to thing. So do you know already what the next thing that you're kind of zoning on will be? The next, well, the next thing I'm going to do is just is just not do anything. Not, yeah. um, that's that's the the plan. I promised my wife this this book turned out to be a lot more absorbing and um, and time consuming and, and sort of travel intensive than than I really had expected. And so now that I'm coming to the end of living with it with the promotional period, once all of that is done, then I'm certainly going to take some time off. And I've got a large number of grandchildren and a very big happy family and we're going to spend a lot of time you know just rotating among all of them and and then traveling as I say with my wife and we've also got a big garden in that we haven't been able to attend to that as as assiduously as we both would have liked because of me being away so much with this book. You've traveled to so many places where do you want to travel that you haven't yet been? Well I would love to go to lots of places there's so many you know even though I have spent a lot of years traveling and been very lucky in that way. There's still lots of places I've not been at all or barely been at all. And the latter category, the place that I've barely been, would love to go back is, to is Japan. Um, in the category of places I've never been to at all, Russia, amazingly enough, and India I've never been to. I'd love to go to both of those places. But um, having said that, my wife is, is, is more keen not to do a lot of long-haul travel. And it would clearly be better for the universe and the world if we if we all cut back on our long haul travel. So I think probably we'll focus more on, you know, just traveling within Britain. There's still an infinite number of things to see here, and 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 also then just you know little trips to the continent. I, I particularly like those little three or four or five day trips when you go in and have a fairly intensive time in Paris or Berlin or whatever, and then and then withdraw from that, go back to your normal life. And I'd rather do that than, say, spend three months traveling. And you mentioned sort of society's um, views on long-haul travel and, and flights now. Um, do you think that for someone starting out as a travel writer now, they'd, they wouldn't have the same opportunities that you did because it's, it's not a done thing anymore? I mean, we've seen Prince Harry and Meghan, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, yes, I think I think I mean they'll certainly have the opportunities, but they, but there's much more of a guilt factor attached to it now, and not just in terms of you know carbon footprints and all that, but also I think there's much more sense now that you are adding to an overload. You know, I was I was in recently in Venice for the first time, and you realize this place, certainly around St Mark's Square, is just impossible now. And um, you know, I still had a wonderful time there, but I felt guilty for just you know, taking up space and, um, and and making it a less genuine place because, you know, I was there with all of these other tourists doing the things that tourists do rather than the things that locals do. And and, I've, and I think that that is a problem. I mean, um, lots and lots of places have just become overwhelmed with tourists. And if you become, a, if you are a tourist yourself, I think you have to acknowledge that you are part of the problem. So there is that as well. So, yeah, I mean, these are these are issues that I didn't have to be distracted by when I was when I was young and traveling. Um, so the, in, in lots of ways, the world has got a lot tougher. And with so much going on around us in the world and, and with the climate now, why is 
now the time to look within ourselves and look at our bodies? Well, it isn't that this is a special moment for looking at the bodies. I mean, I think any time would, would you know, any point in history would be, would be a good time to do it. It was, um, this was just, this was something that I wanted, I've wanted to do for a long time. Um, and as I'm now coming to the end of my productive years, I wanted to make sure I did this while I still could. Uh, so that was part of the reason for me. But it is something that's been a perennial fascination for me. And, and also a perennial sense of slight embarrassment and shame that I, you know, that I have all these things inside me that are keeping me upright and sentient and, you know, allowing me to function. And yet, you know, I just take them completely for granted. And, um, and I, you know, like most people, I don't look after myself anything like as, as scrupulously as I ought to. And yet, you know, your, your body looks after you. I mean, even if you're trying to... As I mentioned in the book, is if you tried to kill yourself by lifestyle, it would take forever. You know, it takes you. It takes a long time to drink yourself to death, or to you know, to eat so much that you have a heart attack, or you know, you can smoke as many cigarettes as you can you know consume in a day, and the chances are still you know overwhelming that you won't get lung cancer. I mean, there's a much better chance of getting <laughs> lung cancer. I'm not suggesting anybody should do any of those things, but I mean, it's not a certainty that you would you would get lung cancer. You know. Most people who smoke a lot don't. They they die of something else. Do you find you have a new appreciation for your body after researching it for sort of four years? Yeah, I do, and and not just for my my body, but for life altogether. I mean, the thing, the thing that has came across to me really powerfully in the book, and a little bit unexpectedly, was just how lucky we are to have life. And also, I don't know if this is from doing the book or just because I'm you know. I'm 67 years old and moving towards the end of, of my time on earth. But you also realize that, you know, your life is very precious. It doesn't, you know, you, you didn't exist for a long time before you were born. And when you die, you're not going to exist ever again. So, you know, every life is just this little brief spell in the middle of a great massive um, eternity. And, and so, you know, I, I really feel quite profoundly and even more so now having done the book that, that none of us should let a day go by that we don't, just you know, revel in the fact that we get to have existence. It's a pretty ma- amazing state, and most of us, you know, I think you and I, as we sit here now, are, and most people around us are are in a state of pretty good health. I mean, you know, most of the time. So you know, those of us who are, who are reasonably sound in body should be especially grateful. You have this amazing way of kind of. Um, describing characters and and understanding people, it seems like. So why do you think people are so disinterested in what's going on in their own body and even to the point where they abuse their own bodies? Well, the thing, you know, I, I think the things about the body are exactly the same things as... as as, as with climate change and, and these other issues. And the problem is that the, the consequences aren't, aren't felt soon enough. I mean, the consequences are long are long-term. Um, just as, you know, we can keep polluting the world and throwing things up into the atmosphere. And it doesn't, it's not going to make the world unlivable tomorrow. It's going to be, you know, sometime in the future. And so we don't, we don't have to live with the consequences. We can have the pleasure of it now and, 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 you know, postpone the consequences to a future generation. And with the body, it's much the same. You know, you can eat a lot of junk food now and it won't, you know, you're not going to die next week. It's not going to affect you. It's not even going to make you less healthy next week. It's going to, it's going to take a long time for the consequences of that to build up. And so, it's, you know, so if somebody hands you 
I've just come back from the States. So I've been, you know, repeatedly served these massive portions and, you know, slices of cheesecake the size of a house brick and things like that. And you know you can eat it. And, and although you'll probably feel a bit queasy afterwards, you're not going to have any real immediate consequences. It's not going to shorten your life just from eating one piece of cheesecake or doing you know, these things. So I think that's the problem with the body is that, is that we can enjoy all these things now and really not and defer the consequences much further down the road. And there's not just a disinterest in the consequences, but also a distrust of maybe people that know the body better than we do. So, you know, the, the recent news that the UK has lost its measles-free status as people out there that are very anti-vaccine. Um, why is it? You know, I think that's a more general... Uh, it's a real problem, I agree, and it's a real worry. And I think, and it, But I think it's a more general problem than just with, with medicine and the body. I think, I think there is this distrust of scientists now that has kind of crept into into the world, I think much more so in America than here, but it is creeping in here as well. And and I think that's a great shame and it's a worry. I mean, I grew up in a world in which, you know, if a person had a white lab coat on, whatever they said, you just believed them and you just accepted it as, as fact. And maybe maybe we were, you know, too trusting. Um, but now we've gone the other direction and I think that, that people, a lot of people almost automatically suspect scientists and what they tell us is if somehow they've been corrupted or they're part of some massive, strange, vague conspiracy. And I, I just don't understand that at all. And and I do I do worry that really worry that about people refusing to get vaccinations. Not least because I have two two very small grandchildren who until quite recently were too young to have vaccinations themselves, you know. And it's because you're you know you're not only exposing your own children to risk but and the wider community to risk. And I think that's very irresponsible. And it's a shame that, that the, the real messages about things like vaccines and climate and all that kind of thing aren't getting through to more people. And how can people like you or I that, that are ambassadors for science, that you know write about science and, and research, how can we tackle the, the general distrust in the population? Well, I think just just keep working at it. I, but I, I do sometimes think that it's it's not people like you and me who, who need to be worried about what to do. I think it's, it's real scientists that are often not presenting themselves. And not, I mean, you know, I can't speak with authority on these issues. I can just say what I believe, you know, that I trust what scientists tell me. But, but I, I do think sometimes scientists should, should work harder at engaging with the public and, and with making their feelings known. You know, who, who represents, who among scientists represents the pro-vaccine movement in Britain today or the United States? Nobody. I mean, who's, who's getting up and speaking out? Nobody. Not, nobody in particular. Um, so we sort of need, you know, like a David Attenborough type person or somebody who can speak with authority for, for these things. And I think there's a real absence of, of, of those people doing that, of, you know, academics do tend to stick in their ivory towers and, and not get out there and make themselves heard. Mm. I think science is supposed to be seen as, you know, apolitical. It's supposed to be unbiased. And there's a fear that, you know, for, for any scientist to come out and and even if it's their opinion, and even if the science backs them up, it's still a difficult position to put yourself in, isn't it? Yeah, but we're talking about things that are really, really important. And and of course, I mean, it's, it's, I mean it'd be different if somebody said, you know, I'm... I'm pro-vaccine and therefore you should vote for such and such a person. 
Um, but I'm talking about people who just who just be speaking out for sound science for what we you know these are things we know this is what we know about global warming these these are, these are facts these are things that or or about you know and vaccines and lots and lots of other areas where there's a, a general doubt and suspicion. I, I I just think it's regrettable that more scientists aren't, aren't a bit more vocal about that. Um, going back to um, the effect that writing this book had on you yourself, are there any lifestyle changes that, that you've made and you, that you want others to make? I, should, I, I so wish I could say yes, absolutely, because <laughs> there's plenty that I should have made. But in fact, exactly the opposite has happened to me. I mean, I promise you, I swear, that as soon as I finish with all this stuff, promoting the book and everything, I will, I'm going to be... Mr. Virtuous, but but it's really hard to when you're when you're on the road promoting a book to to lead a, a virtuous lifestyle, and so no, I'm at the moment I just seem to be eating all the wrong foods and packing on weights and to my great dismay, but I will I will rectify that as soon as I possibly can because I I, I am acutely aware from having done the book that. That you know, there's all there's, it's it's very very foolish to abuse your body in any way, because it's the only one you're ever going to get. Most of it is irreplaceable. You know, you're not going to get. It's you know, I mean, you can, you can get a replacement heart, but it's a really high risk strategy. You you know, you really should be looking after your your own heart, the one you're born with. And if you do, you know, it, it should last you for eighty years or more, which is pretty amazing. You think that it's going just nonstop, you know. One of the other amazing fact that I learned in the book is that the, the, the amount of work a heart does over a lifetime is, is equivalent to lifting a, a one-ton weight 150 miles in the air. Wow. That's how much energy your heart expends over a lifetime. So, you know, the fact that the, that the human heart in somebody who's you know 80 years old is still pumping away, uh, that's, that's just that's a miracle. It's incredible. I wonder, you mentioned the traveling that you had to do for this book was, was surprising. I would have thought of all of your books, this would be the one that had the least amount of travel involved. Yeah, well, I do. I've, I've, for years I've been writing two kinds of books. One, one, is, one is the travel books where I have to go somewhere and actually have experiences and do that kind of thing. And then the other is what, what we, we in our house called my stay-at-home books, which is the whole idea of those is that I can just go to the library all day and come home for dinner every, every evening. And, and this was largely in that category, but then it turned out that I, I really felt that I had to go off and talk to experts. And, and the, more I, the more I started doing the work on the book, the more I realized that it, it would have been a distortion just to do British experts. You know, I live in Britain, so it was obviously be much more convenient just to go and talk to people in Britain who can answer these questions for me. And there wouldn't have been any problem finding people who could ask, you know, certainly enough expertise just in Britain. But I thought that would distort things. So I felt kind of compelled to go and spend some time in America and and also other places like Holland. I went and spent some time doing interviewing somebody and things like that. So I tried to spread myself out a bit more. And, and um, so I actually ended up Spending a lot more time away from home than I had, than I had expected. All of it very pleasurable and profitable, I have to say. But but it did take me away from my house. What was it like um, compared to your books where you travel and live in very different places? Going from talking about a location to talking about the body with which you've taken to all those locations. How did that differ in the right? Well. The- I'm not I'm not quite sure how to answer that, but but the one thing I I tried 
I, I wanted you to do in, in, in this book was as much as possible to make it a celebration of the body. Because, I mean, the one thing I'm absolutely convinced of is clearly all of us are, sometimes are going to be unwell and eventually you'll be so unwell you die. I mean, that's, that's life. That's an inevitability. But I think by and large, you know, your body looks after you. And, and mostly when you're looking at your own body, it's mostly a success story. You have all of these things inside you that are working in this kind of miraculous coordination to keep you going. And so I wanted the book, I didn't want to dwell on diseases and frailties and all the things that can go wrong. So I didn't, I, you know, I, although those things are in the book, I, I tried to be much more positive because I think the story of the human body is, is generally a, a positive one. And just while we're on that topic, that I, and another, another fact that just absolutely amazed me because I had no idea of it was that we all get cancer just constantly. You know, you, right now within you, probably somewhere there's at least one cell that has, has just turned cancerous. And, and if it slipped through the body's defense systems, you know, then it would proliferate and you would, you would get cancer, you know, properly get cancer and, and have this huge problem that you, you would have to deal with. But actually, in the course of human lifetime, that is a very rare event when, it, when cancer slips through and, and actually gives you problems. Most of the time, your immune system just identifies these cancerous cells and just wipes them out before they before they duplicate, you know, before they actually go are able to get up to any real mischief. And I thought that's amazing, you know. But at least a couple of thousand times a year, it's thought you get cancer. It's just it doesn't ever develop past a single cell or a couple of cells. A thousand times a year. Yeah. Well, they. I mean, nobody really knows. But, it's, but I, that was an estimate was done by one authority in California, and. Uh, but 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 certainly you know many multiple times a year your body you're, you've got you know, you've got trillions of cells and they're constantly reproducing so clearly there's going to a lot of times something's going to go wrong and nearly every time that something goes wrong your body sorts it out it just you know identifies those cells and kills them off sends them away and just you know try again and I thought that was that's pretty amazing so so this comes back to my overall point which is that the, the story of the human body is mostly a story of success and you know all of these things looking after you you know but how many times in your life have you said oh thank you immune system you know, <laughs> you know I feel so well today thanks to all your tireless efforts on my behalf and of course we don't we just take it entirely for granted um, that actually got me thinking um We've talked about evolution and how our body has adapted over the years, but I think there's this kind of belief that our body stopped evolving. Um, is there any you know, evidence that you came across, anyone you spoke to, that had any idea of what could happen next for the human body? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm clearly I'm no expert on this, and so um, and I didn't pursue that really very much in terms of the research. But, but it, I mean, it seems to me, talking is just obviously a non-professional, but it does seem to me that evolution is continuing process and so that in some ways we will be evolving there i have read and it's a certain amount of obvious plausibility about it that because we are so good at manipulating things now we can even if we can't stop evolution we can we can actually you know contain it and manipulate it and work around it i mean i'm wearing eyeglasses right now um and you know so if although my I've ended up with defective eyes at my age, so you know it's a problem I can deal with. And so we, we, we as, as beings, so in, you know, in a way that your dog cannot, we can do things to to solve problems where our body fails us because of some evolutionary frailty. And in that sense, I suppose 
you know, it's sometimes argued that we have reached the end of evolution. But but having said that, clear, clearly, I mean, it's still, we're still mutating, we're still coming up with new things. And, you know, I, I, it would be really interesting to see how different a human being would be 50,000 years from now. But there will, surely there will be ways in which we are physically different from, from now. Um, I can't begin to imagine, I mean, I would just be guessing, but, but you would sort of hope that 50,000 years from now we would at least have sort of evolved our way out of cystic fibrosis and things like that. Your books are so widely loved. Um, what is it that you think makes them so appealing? Well, that's very kind of you to put it like that, Amy. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know, and, and I'm not sure that it would ever be profitable for me to, to consider that too much. All I can say is that, you know, what I do is I write nonfiction, and, and I always feel that what I'm doing is exactly the same thing that we all do all the time reflexively, which is, you know, if... If you if you were reading a newspaper now and you were on your way to you know you're on the underground you're on your way to meet some friends and you read a, a, some remarkable story in the Evening Standard or something uh, you would want to share that with your friends as soon as you got to the pub you'd be, did you see the story about such and such did you know this and that's really all I'm doing with my books is I'm just I'm reading and reading and you know delving everywhere I can think of to find information and very often I'll find something and I think that's amazing how did I go all these years without knowing that or why didn't they teach me this in school I would have paid more attention and then really just trying to share that with with other people and um, so I don't think it's a special talent or, or anything you know very distinctive about me but it's 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 just what I enjoy doing and luckily a lot of people seem to enjoy reading that. I definitely do. I definitely do. Anyway. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you. <laughs> um, your latest book, The Body, who do you think the audience you've got in mind for, for that book is? Well, I'm hoping, I mean, I'm hoping that that it would be pretty general. I mean, I'm you know, hoping that it would be, appeal to almost almost any you know, reasonably well-educated adult anyway. But also, I mean, my real ambition would be for people like my son, the doctor, to read it, for him to say, oh, I didn't know that. You know, because because although he knows, you know, a zillion times more about the human body than I ever could, because it's what he spends his his life dealing with. And, he, you know, I mean, he he spent years studying it and he understands the mechanisms of the body at a, you know, a very elemental level in a way I never will. There's, as I say, there's so much that he doesn't know about the, 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 the sort of history of developments within the body and, and things like that. So I, I would be especially delighted if, if my son would you know, hear reading the book now and said, oh, wow, that's amazing. I didn't know that. I didn't know that about blood. Or I didn't know about, you know, like the history of blood types or something like that, why they're called, you know, why it's called type O, for instance. Why, why do you have A, B, and O? What happened to C and D and all that? And stuff like that. And, and those are things that he's likely not to know. So that that's kind of my goal would be to amaze my son or any other <laughs> doctor. Do your family read your books then? Well, they say they do. I don't always know <laughs> if they do. Um, yeah, they, I mean, I, I, obviously, I always give everybody a copy, and um, and they all, you know, they always tell me, "Oh, yeah, I really enjoyed it, Dad. Thanks." But I've never quizzed them too closely because it's unfair. I mean, I don't expect any human being, any any particular human being, anywhere to to read my books because, you know, you, you I mean, we all know what it's like. You there are so many books in the world, you can't read them all, and to expect. Somebody, even somebody, you know, very close to you, to expect them to read a book when they've got lots of other things to do, I think, would be a bit demanding. You seem to have such a quite pleasant life um, and lifestyle. 
What's your secret? Well, I, I, I say that the, the real secret to me is to being uh, happy in life is to be self-employed. I think that's just the best thing ever. I mean, I, I was quite late on in life when I discovered that. I worked, you know, I had a whole career as a journalist and working in newspapers. And I think I was you know, in my mid to late 30s when I quit and started writing full time. And first of all, it's quite scary because suddenly you realize you don't have any paid holidays anymore, you know. Just because the rest of the world has a bank holiday on Monday doesn't mean that you do. And, um, and you know, you have bills to pay and you, and you don't, yet you don't have a you know, monthly paycheck coming in. So that way it's a little bit unnerving. But at the same time, it's just so liberating. You can, you can work when you want to and you can take time off if you can afford to, you know. But you can structure your life completely in every way and you don't have to... You know, you don't have to check whether you can have the third week in August off, uh, whether you're senior enough to put your name down, you know, ahead of other people, and all that kind of stuff. I just loved that. Um, and to me, that was that was really, as far as my ambitions went when I became a writer, was just to be able to, you know, keep our heads above water and to pay bills, and to be able to, you know, have freedom to control my life the way I wanted to. The fact that I've ended up having so much more is, 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 is fantastic, but it really wasn't necessary. <laughs> but you need to be quite sort of disciplined to make the, the freelance life work for you. You absolutely have to be disciplined. And one of, the, one of the great exasperations for me is the number of people who write to me, and I presume to lots and lots of other authors, that sort of want to know, you know what kind of fairy dust they have to get in order to sprinkle over themselves in order to you know, have the same lifestyle. And and the fact is, if, you know, what, if you want to do something in life, anything in life, and, and do it well enough to be really successful at it, you have to work really hard. And, you know, I mean, you have to work really, really hard. And part of the reason why I'm slowing down now is because it is hard work. And it's not something that I just sort of dash these things off. I mean, I really sweat blood to, to get a book finished. And it's it's tiring and hard, and um, and I'm sure you know it's the same for anybody in any career. If you want to be, if you want to be, you know, at the top of that career, you have to work really hard in order to get yourself up there and to stay up there. And yet, lots and lots of people somehow think that it's just really a question of either being extremely lucky or, or of, of you know, just somehow having some magical formula. Um, you have to be lucky as well, but but it, luck alone won't, won't do it. Of all your books, then, which was the hardest to, to research and write? The hardest to research and write, unquestionably, was uh, was A Walk in the Woods, which was my book about trying to hike the Appalachian Trail. First of all, it was just physically really, really hard. The Appalachian Trail is the longest, long-distance footpath in the world, and... And it's 2,200 miles, and, and I was hiking with a very unfit companion, and we discovered early on that we were never going to do the whole thing. That it was really, so that was that was physically really demanding. Emotionally, I, I I was I dwell on it much in the book, but I was really quite, I would say more or less devastated when I realized I'm not going to do the whole thing. You know, so what do I do? I mean, I've, I've signed a contract to write a book about walking the Appalachian Trail, and I can't do it. I can't, you know. I can't do the whole thing. It's just too much for me. Uh, so, so at that level, it was that was very, very demanding. And then when I came to write about it, there's nothing in the world that I've ever done that's harder to write about and, and maintain at an interesting level than walking. Because although it's a, I love to walk, and it's a, you know it's the most relaxing and rewarding of of human occupations, it's really hard to write about it. I mean, because you're just essentially putting one foot in front of another and doing the same thing 
endlessly day after day. So trying to bring in some variety and kind of keep the energy level of the book up was a, was a, a big challenge. And uh, and that's part of the reason why the, the, the book goes off in all these other tangents and talks about the history of nature and North America and how mountains are formed and, and all that kind of thing, which I hope is very interesting, but it was also just to kind of plump the whole thing up. <laughs> because the descriptions of the walking alone, clearly, I mean, I realized very early on, we're not going to do it. And which was your favorite to write? My, the book that's been the best to me was The Short History Nearly Everything, because that, that sold really well and has continues to sell really well. And, um, and, and, and it's, it's done well in lots of different languages. So it's kind of my most universal book. But the book that I most enjoyed doing was probably my memoir, which is The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid, which was just about growing up in the middle of America in the middle of the 20th century. I was very lucky to have a very happy childhood, and and I led this really quite intensive fantasy life in which I imagined myself as a superhero. I was quite a solitary little boy, and I, and I imagined myself as the Thunderbolt Kid, who was this superhero who could vaporize people that displeased him and and fly and do all kinds of things. And I, I really enjoyed doing that book, partly because it didn't involve a lot of research. It was mostly just remembering what it was like to be a kid. And also because I was I was you know writing about a very happy time in, in my life and and I enjoyed revisiting all those old memories. It's funny you mentioned that you grew up in America because Obviously, you were, um, your book, Notes from a Small Island, was, was chosen by the British public as a book that most represented the British identity. How did that make you feel? Well, it was great. I mean, it was a really great honour. And, and then after that, for a while, I was being referred to as a national treasure because <laughs> of this book. And, of course, that's, that's the sweetest honour you could possibly have. I think the advantage I had with that book is that as an outsider, first of all, you, you, you often see things that the natives don't see or you question things that they, they would always take for granted. I mean, I've noticed this in reverse at home. I know an English guy who moved to Des Moines, my hometown, married a local girl and I'm friends with them. And he would often ask questions about Des Moines, things I never thought, like even like, why is it called Des Moines? And I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't really know. I've never, you know, it just is. This is what I was born into and I never questioned it. So there is that, there is that sense that sometimes you, you're more curious about things because you, you know, you've come to them as, as a grown-up rather than be born into it. And then also the advantage I have in Britain is that the British are not very good at praising themselves, which I think is a wonderful trait. I mean, there's nothing more insufferable than a person who thinks everything about them and the world around them is, is, is great. And the British are really not very good at, at um, being boastful. It's a very attractive quality, but then I think they do appreciate it when somebody else comes along and says, you know, here's something you really are. You're pretty good at a lot of things and you don't give yourself credit for it. That's what the book really was, was a kind of a love letter to Britain. That was writer Bill Bryson talking about his award-winning career and how The Body might be his last book, at least until something else piques his interest. If you're still curious about The Body's inner workings, there are still plenty of things scientists don't know about yet. In the November issue of BBC Science Focus magazine, we look at sleep and the questions researchers are still asking about its origins. We also dive into the research that will help us save our oceans from threats such as pollution, acidification and climate change. Of course, if you can't wait to see a copy, why not listen to another episode of the Science Focus podcast? Might I recommend our interview with Sir David Attenborough, 
where he talks about the wonders of our natural world and why it is important that we act now to save it. As always, let us know what you think about this episode in the comments and leave us a review if you haven't already. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.